0: Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode. This is the 100th episode of UAP Studies Podcast. Jason, the time has flown by. What a lot of work, man.
1: It's been a ton of work, and uh, I can't believe that we've made it this far at 100 episodes. We were talking about earlier how uh, you know most podcasts, they start, and if you could get past the seventh episode, you're most likely to succeed in, in continuing podcasting, but a lot of people quit at the seventh episode. We've perceived, we've persevered. We made it to 100, and I really hope we make it to another 100 because this has been a heck of a ride. And we have a guest fitting of this
0: ceremonial uh, anniversary episode. Uh, we are super excited to chat with him in just a moment here. We're also going to raise a glass to all of our viewers and listeners and uh, all the guests who have made UAP Studies Podcast a success. So stay with us uh, for a very special episode of UAP Studies Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to our very special 100th episode. Uh, my name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my good friend and illustrious co-host, Mr. Jason Gilmet. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I can't believe that we made it to 100 episodes. This it's is a lot
0: of work, man. It's a what lot is of it? work. The average podcast fails in seven episodes or less.
1: That's right. Yeah. You
0: know, nobody listens. You get discouraged. You figure, what am I doing all this for? You put your heart and soul into it, as most podcasters do. So it's very difficult to weather that storm. And, you know, get good quality guests when you don't have any good quality guests. And I think it comes down to the, the guests, the viewers and the hard work that went into it or we wouldn't be here. Right. So, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, what a guest we have for our 100th episode. We couldn't be any oh, yeah. more honored uh, to have somebody uh, as esteemed as this gentleman here. And um, yeah, I mean, we want to introduce Mr. Jacques Vallée, but I want everyone to understand that Jacques is not just a UFO author, wrote a few books here and there. And even people that know him, I think, would be surprised at some of the things he's actually involved with. Uh, And I have them here. So obviously, we know he was an early Internet pioneer, a scientist, an author, uh, an astronomer, an inventor, uh, an engineer. Uh, He developed one of the first computerized maps of Mars for NASA. In a time where that's not an easy thing to do, you know, um, worked on an early information center called ARPANET, which is basically the precursor to the modern day Internet and messaging as we know it. Uh, worked alongside people like Jay Allen Hynek. He was a chair of astronomy um, uh, at Northwestern University, early AI research. Um, he's worked at the Stanford uh, sure. University's Plasma Research uh, Institute. Uh, later on, became a venture capitalist and started helping companies with really crazy ideas actually bring that to fruition. And 14 of them went to IPO and became, you know, like publicly traded. Uh, some of these inventions are insane, like the cyber knife, uh, which was used for cancer procedures, um, imaging electronics, nanotechnology for optic uh, networks, uh, regeneration technologies, um, and even uh, his lab, Handy Labs, uh, with their transformative oncology. Uh, technology, so not just a ufologist, a, a man with a brain bigger than we can possibly mm-hmm. tap, and uh, we're super stoked to have uh, Mr. Jacques Fellay on the show. So please welcome.
2: Thank you very much. But you know, many of the things that you've mentioned um, are true. But they were. It's always a team. You know, I think that's the lesson that I've learned in Silicon Valley. You know, the, you have. You have inventors. You have people in the background who, who get the capital and put the structures together, and so on. And it it takes it it takes an entire team. And you know that cycles back to, you know, the study of UFOs or UAPs. You know, where are the teams? Yeah. We we need if we're serious in the next, you know, next uh, step, next generation. We need to we need to do it not with a couple of bright people with ideas, but we need to build to really build serious teams.
1: Do you think with um, because with the Galileo project, this is sort of a shift in that mentality that we, you know, the scientists are starting to take it seriously and they're
2: teaming up for it? Yes, yes, definitely. But I'm, you know, certainly very grateful to have lived long enough to see to see that, and to see the stigma removed, because I, I think of, you know, what what Dr. Heineck would have given, what uh, Dr. MacDonald, you know, Jim MacDonald would have given, uh, my old, you know, mentors, Amy Michel, and in, in France and so on would have given to see this day, where the the subject is recognized as, you know, worthy of. Serious scientific research, uh, you know, uh, all my life, uh, you know, I've been, you know, an outlaw, if not an outcast, mm-hmm. you know, working with my own resources doing this and and in association with uh, a number of people who taught me the technologies I needed to to master to, to do what I wanted to do. But, uh, you know, it's been... Uh, pretty lonely um, in many of these uh, cases, the, the mainstream of ufology just thought I was crazy. I mean, look at Passport to Magonia, you know, was, was an example where people said, uh, you know, Valet has gone off the deep end with this uh, this thing about the little, people and the legends from the middle ages. Well, we now know that the subject didn't start you know, at Roswell in 1947 yeah. that there were cases before, as you know, Trinity was two years before and people haven't realized that yet. And of course we have other people have done research, uh, you know, on um, uh, observations that were made during the, the early 20th century and the 19th century. We've, we've published a book called Wonders in the Sky that goes back through the middle of the 19th century with 500 unexplained cases, okay? Right. Uh, where you know the fight has been, and we 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 need to take the totality of this now that the subject is open, and we have to move forward with that.
1: Right. And it's good that you guys are looking at not only what's happening now, but what's happened in the past, what's, you know, because this phenomenon has been taking place for thousands of years, like people have been seeing stuff in the sky, and describing things landing down and communicating with people for thousands of years. So it's interesting now that we're, it's almost like we're rediscovering something that maybe we've lost in the past, you know, we've, we lost that connection or something. So it's like we're rediscovering it because our lifespans are so short.
2: Well, and you know, it takes hard work to go through the, the old collections uh, because, of course, the social context has changed as civilization has evolved. So you you have to take every pretty much in every century, place it in in the context of what words meant. You know, you you look at the Bible, and there are descriptions in the Bible that remind us. Uh, you know some of the things people see now, but the, the the words and the the context are so different that we we can't just equate them. so there is all that work needs to be done by historians and by scholars and so on and that's what uh, we've we've tried to try to, to do but then even more recently, you know look at the limits i mean uh is that really unique uh were there cases like that before? Well, if you if you look only at the American cases, like uh, Congress seems to say we shouldn't talk to other countries about this because we're going to be seeing new things, you know. By um, well, I don't know if you spoke to other countries, you would find that in the files that we know about, there have been cases like the Nimitz before. You know, with with uh, uh, with large vessels, with aircraft carriers, with um, with uh, icebreakers, with who have uh, uh, not only detected but recorded uh, observations. So, the big question I think now is going to be, well, as Congress gets involved. You no, know, fortunately. Uh, you know, is going to be how much of an international trend we build. And I think that's where, you know, we can talk about the history of what I've done, what other people have done. But we have to, to look forward. We have to change the way we're doing things, because now we're going to engage scientists, you know, seriously all over the world.
0: Right. And to your point about the nimitz and the tic tac video was that really an isolated event well caroline cory went out there and made a movie and uh, uh basically they within three or four days they caught raining tic tacs on their high-tech uh, imagery and on their equipment so it is in the same area too just off of catalina island so if you can go with proper instrumentation and document that it can't be that you know Um, out there, or that, you know, um, minute of a chance, it's fairly prevalent. And maybe it's just, you know, our spectrum as observers, as biological creatures, we only see certain waveforms, we only hear certain frequencies, we're not designed to pick it all up. I mean, even a dog will hear a certain pitch of a whistle that we can't hear. So maybe this has always been going on, and we're just getting better at picking this up, you know, and with people having cameras and 1080p at the fingertips, it makes sense yes. that there would be more um, you know more of this stuff being able to be documented and I'm sure the government with all their technology has way more than the private sector will ever have.
2: Yes indeed. What, when, even talking Galileo, Galileo is an effort at documenting this and sort of boxing it in terms of uh, the physical parameters and I think that's that's tremendously important.
1: Even talking with uh, Kevin Day, who was the radar operator on the Princeton, Um, he mentioned it was the new technology that they just had, like the new radar technology they just had installed is actually what started picking up these... um, tic-tac shaped objects on radar for two weeks he said it was just because of the upgrade so as our technology is getting better maybe our detection of these uh, anomalies are are getting better but one thing that for you which i always thought was amazing is that when it comes down to uaps or sightings you actually show up to the locations and it's funny with with that you can't uh, obviously you can't reproduce what took place there but you always show up At these locations, which to me is like, I've always been fascinated by that, that you've had a career of chasing these events, especially when there's been really good documented, uh, you know, witnesses and and stuff like that. What brought you to be that passionate about this subject that you would, you know, donate so much of your time and and money towards this research?
2: Well, the... You know, as, as you may know, I mean, I've never hidden the fact that I saw a UFO when I was a teenager. I was uh, about 15 in, in France, uh, broad daylight, a beautiful summer afternoon, blue sky, uh, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, my mother called me. She was working in the yard. She was working in the garden. And uh I was doing some work with my father inside the house. She called and I rushed out and when I saw was essentially you know uh, uh, a flying saucer. I mean it 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 was an oval silver object, a disc with uh what I thought was a dome you know, a transparent dome on top. It couldn't have been more than a kilometer away seemed to be uh, over the, the steeple of a, of a church that we could see from our house. And it was motionless, I had time to, to, to look at it. Uh, the, the next day I described it to a friend of mine from school whose house was up the hill another half kilometer. And he said he had seen it and he had had time to get binoculars and look at it with binoculars. So I got him to draw it, and when he drew what he drew was exactly the shape I had seen. So um, I I never tried to hide that. Uh you know, I've had a, a decent career in in science, starting with uh, uh with Paris Observatory, uh where they they knew that uh, I had you know, seen this and called it a UFO. At the time, my father who was a judge, um, well used to human testimony, and also understood technology, said, you know, let's not, first we can't report it because of his position. Um, He didn't want to, you know, judges don't get into the papers. uh, And, he thought that there were so many new prototypes, you know, appearing. Those were the days of, you know, the early fifties, mid fifties, when the the new jets were being demonstrated and so on, and the the fighters and so on. And uh, there were all kinds of things being tried. So uh, I accepted that, and for a couple of years really didn't uh, uh, didn't think much about it. It remained in my memory. But then, you know, when I, I my my first job was at uh, Paris Observatory, uh, tracking satellites, and I was by then more you know uh, adept with technology and so on. I also had people around me that I could ask uh, advice, and it was clear we still didn't have anything like it. Um, i that's when I really became intrigued because, then as I as I continued to work in technology and in astronomy, I found that people had seen an awful lot of things that they wouldn't report because they were afraid for their reputation, they were afraid for their jobs. Uh, w- w- what I had seen was uh was not terribly controversial, except that there was no explanation for it. So mm-hmm. I could um you know, go on with my career. Uh, eventually, a few years ago, uh, being selected with my partners to run a f- venture fund for Then Everybody who reviewed what what we did knew that I was interested in UFOs. I, I've never hidden it. And by now, I couldn't hide it anyway, so it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. No, you can't. Uh, if you type Jacques Valley in Google, I mean you got how many pages that pop up of of your work and and interest And even like Louie was mentioning earlier, all your uh, accolades and you're so humble. And that's what I love about you is that you're so humble about everything that you do and you don't, you know, pat yourself on the back. And it's, it's, you know, really refreshing in this field, ufology because there's a lot of people that are starting to, you know, form these egos around their work or their research. And, you know, as if they're the only ones and you're like, no, we need teams. We need to build large teams. And that humbleness, sir, is, is it's refreshing.
2: Well, you know, there is no other way to do it. I mean, in, in science, you're never alone. You're, you're, you know, I, I've had the privilege of uh, working with a man named Paul Barron, B-A-R-A-N, uh, who is not well-known, but he is really the the, the, the pioneer who built the infrastructure for the internet, uh, namely he invented packet switching. A couple of other people contributed to to packet switching, which is what we're, we're using now to communicate. Uh, and he always said, you know, all, all you do is bring one stone to the cathedral. Mm. That's, that's all you do. And uh, yes, he made a big contribution, but there were dozens of bright engineers and bright programmers working uh, on, on all the different aspects of building even the primitive structure for the arpanet that that became the internet so uh yeah there is no no way that you can make more than just a good contribution and and that's fine and then you have to you have to do it with a team there are very few very few things that have been done by just one man like einstein or you know or galileo um, but uh, even in the, the case of galileo i mean there were other people who were inventing telescopes around that time and and looking for the telescopes uh, galileo was unique because he was a great uh, marketing genius uh, in addition to being a great scientific genius same with Sorry, Sorry, Jay.
0: I was just going to say, I find it really interesting that now we're getting better at inventing technology and things, machines. And you would think that if this was a nuts and bolts topic, machine would find machine. But the better machines we get, the more it seems to be that this is interdimensional or it's not something that is always necessarily (laughs) physical. And we seem to be going more down the rabbit hole now. The smarter we get, we think we're getting closer to that actual finite answer the answer is way less finite and it's infinite you know in its uh possibilities really and nobody knows and good on you i really respect your humility and the fact that you said you know like when you switch from the extraterrestrial hypothesis to more of like a multi-dimensional visitation hypothesis you got a lot of flack and all of the prominent ufologists wanted to string you up and said you were crazy and i'm sure people like galileo and inventors over the years have all gone through the same thing i'm sure people thought isaac newton was crazy and now you know even people like tesla as of fairly recently right so um yeah i find that very interesting
2: well um you have to take everything into account we cannot just narrow it down to one thing we know or one thing we think we know this is a phenomenon that challenges challenges us in both in physics and in psychology in neuroanatomy you know i work now with uh, professor nolan at, at stanford you know uh, and uh, with other people who are st- starting to look at the neuroanatomy of the brain in terms of you know the current research on the brain and what it means in in the perception of extraordinary phenomena like like the, uh, the UFO phenomena. So uh, w- we need to cover all of that. The problem is that the academic community isn't quite ready for that. You know, right. the, the, the psychology building is at one end of the campus and the physics building is at the other end. Yeah. And they really have no reason to get together except at the, the Christmas party, you know. So um, we we don't have the academic, equipment or uh, the academic architecture to deal with a, a problem of that uh, you know of that variety and, and amplitude um, to some extent the military is better prepared because they have very good sensors uh, that that are deployed in, in connection with you know with with their platforms whether it's a ship or or uh, you know an f-18 uh and that's in uh in in the you know in the event of war um those but those sensors were not designed to uh to, to catch ufos or to document ufos they were designed to essentially to to detect the exhaust of an enemy plane and locate it and find its distance and and aim you know ammunition at it so and it's difficult to extrapolate also from what the even the military is getting and uh so the, the the challenge now is to uh is to bridge those different disciplines in in a way that is um sober uh, that is uh, complete that is uh uh, you know, very carefully documented, and and in my opinion, to do it all over the world. You know, the U.S. is 1.9 uh, percent of the habitable surface of the Earth. Uh, you know, what's going on in the other 98 percent? You know, are we going to ignore that? So, uh, I I think that's the next problem that uh, Congress is going to have to address. You know, maybe the UN should be involved and should open up the opportunity for countries to come forward with what they know. Um, I know for a fact that there are a number of, of countries because I've spoken to you know, it, it, people who had executive roles uh, in, in several of those countries, that they have data that has never been published. And the reason it hasn't been published is that they are waiting for the US to create a framework you know, there is so much admiration and respect for U.S. American technology, for Silicon Valley, for inventions, for, you know, the internet and everything else that uh, people assume that, you know, if there is something unknown out there, the U.S. is going to deal with it first. And they'll tell us, well, um, you know, there has been so much secrecy over the years that other people have retreated and thought, well, you know, why why aren't we sharing the data? I mean, we're sharing climate data, we're sharing you know, financial data, we're sharing all kinds of things that's open between different countries to make the world work. Yeah. So, and how come we cannot communicate on this particular subject? Well, uh, maybe the first country that exploits that technology of you know whatever UFOs are uh, will will gain something. But um, if you don't have the observations, uh, you're you're in a desert by yourself, you know, and uh, other people cannot help you. They you know I'm in uh, tomorrow. I'm leaving for France. There is a meeting next month organized by the French Space Agency, which is the third largest in the world after, uh, behind, the uh, Roscosmos and, and NASA. Uh, but you know, they launched the Kepler telescope, you know, from Kuro, you know. So, uh, they, uh, there is an international meeting with seven countries. The U.S. is not represented. Well, You know, uh, Argentina is coming, Holland is coming, Norway is coming, Italy, UK, uh, you know, they're all making presentations about UFOs and and, the science applied to ufology. Uh, In the US, there is one presentation by a friend of mine who presents uh, some of the work that has been done on uh, pilot sightings. You know that um, Dr. Richard Haynes pioneered that and one of his friends is making the presentation. But the, 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 the pilot sighting catalog was developed in France initially and then augmented by cooperation between Dr. Haynes and the people who are doing it in France. Okay. That's an example of a very good result you know, from international cooperation, but we need more of it. Uh, Why, I proposed a list of, um, you know, American scientists who could uh, contribute to the the meetings in Toulouse next month. And the, the, uh, you know, the reaction both from the US, there was no push. And the reaction was, well, you know, let them publish what they have. And we'll take it into account, but the cooperation isn't isn't really working, and that's my my main subject of frustration today. When I when I look at how much has been accomplished and where we go, there is a valid argument that the the subject is so complex, and the U.S. has you know the leadership in technology uh and you can certainly argue argue that it's not necessarily true in every field of technology but uh, you know overall um, electronic and physical and chemical technology the. us has a you know obvious leadership position so maybe we don't need the other countries but Uh, I think that's contradicted, as we're talking about the Nimitz, by the fact that I know of data that should come out that would be important for the people who analyze what what happened to the Nimitz in the United States, including the military, if they knew about what is in the other files. Now, uh, it's not for me to, you know, reveal that or, you know, or... or or you know, speak speak to that because I don't have all the information. Uh, those files are official files, and they are properly you know managed, just like the American files are properly managed. But maybe at some point we should all get into the same the same room. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing as you go into history. Yes, uh, Congress says we should look at everything. You know, in the last five years maybe that the, because the military has had extraordinary sensors, you know, on all the platforms, the ships, the planes, certainly in the last five years, there has been a a revolution with that. But, you know, what about before? I mean, uh, even the files of Project Blue Book, you know, are important and uh, they have been studied mostly by amateurs, but they have been studied well. And uh, well, what about history? What about what happened before? So um, in science, you can't just put little limits around little windows around things. You cannot just study you know uh, cancer in a suburb of some of one city. Uh, if you study cancer, you want to study cancer on you know, uh, different cultures. Uh, different races, different uh, ge- geographical situations and so on, and to, to really understand all the parameters. Well, here it's the same thing.
1: Yeah, no, you mentioned that, um, you know, studying cancer, you got to study cancer on its own terms. And when it comes down to the UAP, uh, you know, UFO problems that we have, you got to study that on its own terms as well. We're just trying to figure out what those terms are. And uh, you've done incredibly well uh, throughout the years to basically write and expand our thoughts and ideas on what UAPs may be. Um, we often talk about uh, Louis and I on the podcast that you know, it may be all the possibilities. It may be that it's extraterrestrial, that's interdimensional, extratempestrial, um, that it's a variety of different things that's all happening at once. That's why disclosure is so hard to, do because it's complex it's frightening because there's you know the universe is the universe whatever its nature is we're still discovering that right so i you know again with your books um dimensions was a good one confrontations which of course i read uh passport to i always mess this up magnolia right magonia magonia Magonia. always say magnolia i just i don't know why i'm stuck with words uh but uh yeah no written it in french you'd have been good yeah, Ma-
2: Ma- Magonia was in the Middle Ages the uh, realm uh, above the clouds, where there were there were things happening. You know, of course, the angels are above the cloud and sorcerers uh, were building ships to sail above the clouds. You know, yeah. and uh, so the uh, there were stories about. Um, entities or humanoids from above the clouds that came down in cloud ships and were seen and they came from Magonia.
1: When it comes down for, um, because this podcast, we educate a lot of new people that are new to the subject on UAPs, because as we're discovering and we're learning from people like yourself, sir, uh, they're learning as well. So for the new ufologists, the new people that are getting involved, um, would you have any advice on how to proceed about this in, in a manner that is the way that you've presented it, you know, scientific and keep logical? Because I fell for many, many hoax. I'm not going to lie to you. I fell for many videos and stuff like that. And I always think, you know, would Jack Valley would have fallen for those? Uh, wh- how do you proceed? And what, what's your advice on not uh, on just keeping your head above the water when it comes down to this subject,
2: um, I, 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 one advice I would give, to the extent that I'm, you know, uh, allowed to give advice, is uh, suspend judgment. You know, don't don't say, "Well, this guy was obviously crazy," because maybe he wasn't crazy, uh, and uh, or, you know, this is obviously a balloon. Well, maybe it wasn't a balloon. You know, so you have to really consider everything. Uh, the, the, the basis as uh, Dr. Heineck taught me is the witness. You know, you have to go there and you have to, to meet the witness or the witnesses, uh, including the children and listen to what they tell you. And, and you have to gain their trust because you know there is this great misunderstanding among scientists even that um, when somebody reports something, they are going to give you the complete truth and so on, because you are after all you can sit there, you know, and as a judge, and you know the, these ordinary people are going to tell you what they've seen, and you're going to ask them questions, and they are going to answer those questions truthfully. Well. That's not true. Uh, that's not true because you know a uh, farmer meeting an astronomer. The farmer, you know, may be just as smart as, as the astronomer. I mean, if, if farmers were not just as smart as astronomers, we wouldn't have anything to eat, you know. So uh, the when when people, it's a it's a meeting that has to be. Um, you 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 must gain the trust. I, I think trust is the coin of the realm here. Um, I, you know, I remember a case in Northern California that had been studied by, by a few people, and they published the story that uh, you know this family, essentially a, 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 an older couple, had a uh, a piece of property in a beautiful area up. Uh, close to the Oregon uh, border, near the Klamath River. And uh, that's a seven hour drive from San Francisco. You know, it's not, uh, California is is huge as you know. So, um, what they had seen was something that uh, landed on their land, on their their little little ranch. And uh, then when it took off, it took off uh, straight up into the sky. Um, well, uh, I went there and I I, I met the, this couple. Uh, it turned out the the wife uh, had uh, French ancestry, so she liked to talk about France so on. So that was that was fun, and we sat in there. They they lived in a trailer. So we sat in, in the trailer and they gave me a cup of coffee and we we spoke for a couple of hours. Uh, well, um, once we had, and I asked them about their health, I asked them about you know, their dog, how the dog had reacted to this thing being there. They showed me where it took place. And when I looked at where it took place, You know there were trees around, and the ufologists had said the thing took off, you know, in a certain direction, and that if if it did that, uh, it uh, you know it would have gone through the trees. Well, they said, well, it you know it kind of flew through the trees. Well. Now we're talking about something different, right? We're not talking about uh, some advanced, you know, spacecraft the way we think of spacecraft. We're talking about something that can change shapes, that can manipulate matter, uh, and manipulate space and time. And of course, you know, scientists have thought about that. Um, about what, what forms of, of matter, you know, plasma uh, can, can go through solid, solid things um, or, uh, and what, what happens when you do that. But the, the report, if you just go by the report that was published, the, uh, the, the, the object just went up into the sky. Well, it didn't go up into the sky. And The only reason they told me that was that they knew by then that I wasn't going to ridicule them, that I was going to take that seriously, that I was, you know, that I really wanted to learn from them. I wasn't there to tell them what I had seen. I was there to add, you know, another data point to the the overall database. And when you do that, uh, then interesting things happen. you know, in in the Trinity, which, as, as you know, which I just, Paola Harris and I just republished uh, Trinity in a, in a new edition because we found new things. And um, people have said, well, the Trinity, you know, two kids have seen this crash and yeah, they were there for 10 days. so. This is, you know, in a way, this is better than Roswell because they saw the thing arrive. The thing, you know, left traces in the ground on their property. Uh, we have the testimony of a pilot who saw it at the same time. So we have the pilot and we have the two you know, you know, in the air, and we have the two kids on the ground, and we have a complete scene there of the uh, of the the arrival of that. And then the the army took ten days to recover it, and we know it must have weighed, you know, between two and five tons. So this is not just a hoax that somebody invented. But you know, people have said, how can you trust two kids? I mean, seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. Well, number one, you know, those kids were very bright. Yeah. Uh, this was the end of the war when the kids were in charge of the ranch because. All the adults were out at war in the Pacific or in Europe, in Germany and so on. Uh, This was one month after the first bomb, the first atom bomb, 20 miles from the first atom bomb. Is that a coincidence? I mean, all of that happening together in one place. Uh, This doesn't take anything out of hospital. I've been attacked by saying, well, you you know, you want to, uh, attack Roswell. Well, this supports Roswell.
1: Yeah.
2: Because there are a lot of questions about Roswell. There was no witness at Roswell. You know, so and- here we have three people seeing the thing arrive, and two of them are on the ground ready to the, 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 go to the object and see if they could help. This is at the time when there were no UFOs, the term hadn't been invented, there was no air force. There was no CIA. You know, the Air Force is going to be established by Truman two years later in 1947. The term flying saucer has not been invented. It will be invented by Kenneth Arnold in 1947. You know, there is no knowledge of any of that. The kids think that it's an accident of an aircraft. They are the first ones on the scene. They know they're supposed to help. And what they see is you know, something that's completely out of anything they can imagine. Uh, It's a large oval. They call it an avocado. Of course, everybody was speaking Spanish, right? Uh, And uh, they see three little creatures about the same size as the kids, about three, three feet tall. They breathe our air. They are not like the alien on the cover of Communion. They are not like, you know, the the aliens of Hollywood. They are the humanoid with some gestures or behavior that suggests an insect, you know. So the, the kids don't quite know what words to use, but mostly they call them little men. Right. And, okay, so...
1: And you mentioned as well, sir, that they, they were squealing sort of like jackrabbits because they, they seem to be injured. Uh, yes. That's what the kids have noticed. Yeah.
2: Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, those kids have grown up on, on the ranch, or on the farm. Uh, they, they, they've they seen animals being butchered. They've seen the, they are familiar with, with all of that. So they they uh, tell us their story and the question is, again, uh, here it's the information scientist coming in. Um, I look for patterns. It turns out there are two other cases well known that have been studied not by ufologists but have been studied by states. You know, one in France and one in the U.S. Uh, the Socorro case Mm -hmm. and the Valensol case of 1965 in in France. Well, in both of those cases, there is no flying saucer. The object is egg-shaped. The kids called it an avocado in Spanish, but it's essentially a flattened egg, um, the size of two trucks, extremely strong, but you find uh, something like that in Socorro. Socorro wasn't a flying saucer; it was a flying egg that landed on a very sophisticated landing gear with four legs in a part of the desert where I've, I've gone several times. I had the pleasure of taking uh, uh, Dr. heineck's son there uh, recently. You know, uh, the the site hasn't changed very much. It's it's sort of a, a, a piece of, of land that's left alone. Uh, so it, uh, it, you know, just a little, a few cactus and a few small plants. Uh, and uh, you can still see the place where the thing landed. Uh, and of course, Valensol in France, I'm very familiar with it. I've gone there a couple of times. Uh, I've spoken to the, the main witness and to other witnesses who have never Gone forward with their testimony officially.
1: No, because- sir. Um, we're not too familiar with that case. Do you mind just brushing us up a little bit on on what that was?
2: Yes, uh, in Valensol, um, the the witness is a a, a prominent uh, farmer in the area. He owns several properties. around Valensol is in a, a very beautiful area. Uh, in the Midi uh, of France uh, uh, on the east side of the Rhone River. Um, on a, It's a plateau uh, where there are a number of crops, uh, grapes, uh, different cereals and uh, lavender plants. So it's a very beautiful uh, landscape. This is the uh, first of August, 1965. Um, he goes to his field to water the plants before the sun is up. So he's there at five o'clock in the morning because it's going to get very hot. You know, the the south of France, gets very hot, especially in August. I mean, they just had, you know, a a big heat wave there, uh, you know, uh, last month. So he he goes there to take care of And he sees... um, an egg-shaped object in the in the field, and where it shouldn't be because it's going to damage some plants. Okay, so reflexes of the French farmer, you know, who are these guys who are landing on my property? He thinks it must be some sort of helicopter, but he creeps up to it through uh, another field, where he thinks that he's he can do it, you know, without being noticed, and comes out. Within something like fifty feet of, the fifty meters of, of, that object, and he says it's not a helicopter. For one thing, it doesn't have a propeller. Uh, it's sitting on a small landing gear, and it's egg-shaped. And there are two uh, humans, uh, short humans, uh, like uh, the ones at Trinity. They are about three feet tall. Uh, they breathe our air. They don't have, you know, a helmet or, or breathing equipment. And they are looking at it. They have some sort of uniform. Um, and as he goes closer, again, trying to engage them. Uh, I mean, this is a Midi, so people will talk to strangers. Okay, this is an open area, and he's on his land, you know. So he wants to know what they are doing there. So he's uh, walking towards them, he's not afraid. He's not somebody who is likely to be afraid of very much because he was one of the leaders of the resistance during World War II in the area. So he knows his territory very well. The gendarmes later when they uh, interrogate him are going to be very, very respectful of him because he's uh, his, his wife is the mayor of the town. Um, so this is this is serious. And the one of the small guys uh, takes something from his belt and points him at him and he's paralyzed. Now I, I've asked various doctors, you know, about what kind of paralysis that would be, because he doesn't fall. He's still standing. He can see, he can think, he just cannot move his muscles. And... Uh, he's going to remain paralyzed for a while. They they look at him. They do a couple of things around, and then they go back into the object, and the object takes off. It takes off at an angle, very fast, and vanishes in midair. Okay, it doesn't go away to the to the horizon to a point in the sky. It just vanishes in midair. Um, He's left in his field, paralyzed, for about 20 minutes. And over 20 minutes, he's going to regain. He thought he was going to die right there. Okay. He, by then, he understands this is not a helicopter. That's not, you know, a new, a, a new invention of the French Air Force, or anything like that. But slowly, he regains control of his muscles and goes back to the town and reports it to the to the police. That triggers a whole series of investigations by, uh, of course, the police and the gendarmerie take the, the testimony. He doesn't tell them everything. Again, there is that feeling, which maybe is special to the self of France, that there are some things, and, and you find that in a number of witnesses, contrary to again, to what many scientists think, that, you know, you before a scientist, you're going to tell him everything. Well, that's not true. And Even when you're with your doctor, you may not tell everything to your doctor. Uh, it, the conditions have to be right, and there has to be a lot of trust to talk about intimate things. This was intimate to him because he now wants to understand by himself. You know what what this is he wants to see if it's going to happen again in fact it will happen again and he's not going to report it the second time i know that because i i was there with someone who has a house there who knows the town very well is well respected in the community and who knew about the other witnesses and we could gain his trust and there are some things that he asked us not to uh, publish and we never published it. But the, the, the investigation by the gendarmerie and the police is going to trigger other things. The French Air Force is going to come. The French customs, the French intelligence uh, are going to come. So he's going to be interviewed by five different agencies of the state. Okay, so this is not just the ordinary UFO story. In Socorro, if you remember, uh, Lonnie Zamora, the officer uh, Zamora is going to be interrogated by first his colleagues at the local police department. But that's going to trigger um, investigations by other people. There are three people from the FBI who are in town who help in securing the area. They don't really help in the investigation because they don't have any, uh, you know, any justification for uh, this is not a federal case. This is this is purely New Mexico police case. But the Air Force is, of course, it's reported to Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book, and I've detailed the story in in Trinity. Uh, Project Blue Book is going to send two officers there. They don't do a very good job. They antagonize everybody, including the police. Uh, But then uh, White Sands is going to send somebody because they think it could be one of their devices that has gone off the reservation. And uh, it turns out very quickly that has nothing to do with any of the experiments going on inside uh, White Sands. So, uh, we have a, an abundance of observation, including material, uh, including material residue picked up at the site. So it's a very, very rich, um, very rich story. And some of the things that I've discovered and, and published here have never been published before. Uh, you know, and I think they they bring another level of, of clarity to the, to the Socorro case that wasn't there before. It's certainly not a hoax. Uh, and there were things that happened after all of this over White, inside White Sands, where a, a car of, a, of an officer and his family was stopped by the light from an object that seems to have been the Socorro object that flew off exactly in that direction. So this happens a couple of hours later. The object is over the mountains, over the range uh, that overlooks the um, White sands uh, uh, military area. So that that observation hasn't been published before. And so, again, uh, the creatures are the same. It's not a flying saucer. There is no flying saucer in the book. It's uh, always an egg-shaped object. With extraordinary propulsion properties, that uh, that has uh, you know the ability to move without making a noise, uh, and the creatures are the same. They are described in the same way. They breathe our air, and they are essentially three feet tall.
1: Wait, right. and you mentioned that um, after the two boys stole the tesoro, the treasure, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, and he hid it under the uh, ranch hen's house underneath the floorboards, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's three little entities in his room asking him for the treasure, and he's like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, that's crazy. That's that's something out of like a movie or something, but you can't make that stuff up. That's
2: can't make that up.
1: Yeah. You know, did, did he
2: quit shortly after that, or did he... Yeah, he, he said, uh, Señor, of course, speak speaks Spanish. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to sleep here anymore, you know, and I'm, I I don't want to, to, to work on this ranch anymore. Wow. You can they, only get paid so
0: much more. to get abducted. After a <laughs> while, I'm out. I, I think I don't need money that bad. I'm good.
2: Yeah. You, you know, you, you bring up something important here. I think the, the reason is that he probably thought that what he had seen was from the devil. Yeah, demonic. And, it, reminds me, it reminds me that uh, Dr. Heineck told me when he asked uh, Lonnie Zamora, Officer Zamora, uh, you know, to to give him his testimony, Zamora, uh, Zamora didn't want to talk to Heineck until he had spoken to a priest. Hmm. So he he went to see a priest to tell him about what he had seen before he would um, allow himself to be interviewed by Dr. Heine.
0: What are your thoughts on sort of the religious or spiritual implications, you know, throughout history, have angels really been the same phenomenon, just, you know, described to the best of their ability at their time? I mean, if you've never seen a UFO, you're not going to say it was a UFO, you might say it was an egg or, you know, an acorn or uh, an avocado or something. So do you think there are correlations between our sense of spirituality, things we've seen, um, you know, what's your insight on that?
2: in in many countries that's the first thing that people may think about you know that this is uh, uh, this is so obviously different from ordinary reality and what they what they've learned in school and so on that it can only be uh, something that they would link to religion in some way you now i have no authority to speak on that on, on that subject, the um, a number of people have written books about the religious aspect. You know, both both from the point of view of uh, uh, you know Christianity, but also from the point of view of other of other religions. Uh, the uh, you know. I went to, uh, I, I was, I gave an address to uh, a financial meeting in Saudi Arabia a few few years ago, which was, uh, uh, you know, a, a world meeting on technology and investment, um, a, a little bit like the, 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 the meetings in Switzerland. So there were a, a number of, of dignitaries there and so on. And there was, we had a, a session about UFOs that had been programmed just to inject an idea about the technologies that were at the frontier, you know, the things that we still don't understand. So that triggered a number of discussions with um, people, including you know, mostly businessmen were there, businessmen and entrepreneurs, financial people from Saudi Arabia, who were, you know, very sophisticated in, in their fields, and especially in finance, so So they're obviously interested in everything in the world. And they took me aside. And, and one of them, I actually became friendly with a, a, young, a, a young man, a young engineer um, who had come to California, had studied in California, and went back to his country. And we were talking about that, and I, I said, but, you know, in in uh, in, in the uh, Islamic tradition, I mean, you have the jinns. You know, the jinns come out of nowhere, and they, are, they can be short, appear as short uh, people who do magical things and manipulate things, uh, in in uh, miraculous ways, and, and uh, you have that in your old uh, traditions. He says, "What old traditions? You know, I mean, the, the, what we're taught is that the jinn are here now." Yeah. He told me a story from his family, and you know, these are well-to-do people, well-educated people you know, sophisticated uh, in technology. Uh, his father and his uncle had flown jets, you know, in the Saudi Air Force, you know. And so um, he said that my house uh, one day, my cousin wanted to uh, uh, get some, some water. So uh, from, uh and he, there was a, a a recipient that was on the stove uh, that and he wanted to use the, the stove to uh, to heat his coffee or his tea. And he took the, the recipient that was full of hot water and emptied it out the door, you know, in the yard. But of course, what he didn't know was that uh, there was a gin there that was invisible. Uh, but the, the, you're not supposed to do this. You're, you're supposed to say, you know, if if there is a creature there or the, uh, uh, something there, you know, that I may harm, you know, please go away because I'm going to empty this hot water. And he didn't say that. He didn't think that there could be, you know, an entity there. And there was a jinn and the jinn took him away, over. So he started acting crazy, he started, you know, not making any sense, he couldn't speak, he couldn't speak intelligibly and so on. And the the family called a special um, Imam, you know, who was specialized in talking to the jinn, just like in the Catholic church, who have, uh, uh, you know, special priests who are trained to talk to uh, demons. Well, we call okay. them
1: marriage counselors.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're the exorcist people. Yeah. <laughs> Exorcists. So uh, the imam, uh, you know, pray, says a prayer over this young man and then addresses the jinn and says to the jinn. Now, this is I couldn't believe that conversation. I mean, this is a conversation, you know, at, at the side of a conference on international finance. With a very sophisticated young Saudi who's gone to stand. okay, And he says, Well, they, you know, he was a family was there. Uh, the imam asks, talks to the jinn in, with a particular prayer, special prayer, just like an exorcist could do, and begs him to leave the young man because he says the young man didn't mean harm. He did something terrible in pouring the hot water there, but he did. not Realize that you are there, so please let let him go on with his life, and the, the, you know the the young man seemed to wake up and was normal again. Now this is contemporary. This is not a story from the Middle Ages. This is not the story from you know Arabia of uh, you know two centuries ago. This is now. So. Um, Yes, I mean, you cannot blame people for relating uh, UFOs or UAPs to, uh, you know, to a religious, um, uh, you know, to religious uh, imagination or their religious tradition. Right, and we did explore that.
1: Yeah, sorry, Louie.
0: People say you should never discuss two things with your friends, religion and politics. And the whole topic of ufology delves into both of those because there are religious you know ramifications and if the government knows and not telling us there's political ramifications so it's a very fine line and that's why i think there's so much infighting because those two topics conjure up so much emotion from people and you very quickly become polarized when you're like oh i can't believe you you believe in that like now we're not friends it's very easy for people to get fired up But essentially, if we're going to find the answers here, like you said, we need to suspend judgment and not get so quick to just jump because this isn't an old thing. Some things are still happening right now, you know, and some things have never stopped. And uh, we just don't know. And maybe it's not stranger than we think. It's stranger than we are ever going to be able to think. It may just be above our pay grade. And who knows? We may never know fully what's actually going on.
2: And, and religious uh, scholarship is is appropriate here. You know, yeah. uh, one of the more uh, intense uh, studies is going on now at uh, Rice University uh, with Professor Krippel, Jeff has uh, uh they have assembled probably the largest collection of uh, UFO archives. I've donated all the archives that I'm not, Using anymore than I've used for my my research to them. Uh, Whitley Strieber has donated his very extensive correspondence, you know, that he received after communion that his wife, you know, or helped organize and so on. Uh, it's there at, at Rice in uh, Houston, you know, a few a few miles from NASA, and uh, the uh, th- there is research going on and that uh, that pool of, of research is going to be documented, indexed and, and actively used in, in research. Uh, Dr. Haynes also, after I donated my collections and we distributed the same, uh, Dr. Haynes also collected his collection. Of course, he was at NASA and has made the best analysis of pilot sightings you know, in in the last forty years, and his uh, his records are there as well, and they will be available. They will preserved and available for future research. So, uh, the the department that holds all that collection is the Department of Religion at at Rice University, mm-hmm. the School of Religion, um, in the, the the Department of Humanities, which is great because there. There is no preconceived idea, you know, about what it is. You know, Uh, it's it's not as, you don't get into the same (laughs) arguments as you do when you talk to, you know, the department of physics. Uh, Mm. Because in in the humanities, you have to consider everything and accept everything in in a scholarly way. So I'm very... uh, very happy that my collections are there, together with about 10 other collections of other researchers uh, from the last 50 years.
1: As far as um, the threat narrative, because I, I, we mentioned that quite a bit and we ask clients or not clients, customers, customers. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes. Jason. Yes. <laughs> geez, I've, I'm off. We're not today. making any
0: money off of this. We're not. Yeah. Customers.
1: Customers, yeah. Uh, but we asked each guest, um, you know, what do you think about the threat narrative? Because we keep hearing that quite a bit from the military point of view, saying, you know, like if we disclose it's going to be national security risk or, you know, um, th- the threat narrative is still there. In your opinion, having researched this for so long, do you think there's a threat narrative here or do you think it seems to be an okay, uh, you know, sort of situation where we're not being
2: harmed? Um, There is a lot in in your questions. I remember going to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base with Dr. Hyde in the 60s. to to look at the archives, of the Blue Book archives, which by the way, have always been unclassified. Uh, You know, and every time you see uh, uh, somebody does a documentary on it, it's the secret files of the US cell Force. Well, you've got 20,000 cases there that are open that anybody could, any scientist could have asked to look at. And they never did, you know, including Carl Sagan, including all those guys uh, who could have asked for access to the files. Well, um, the, um, the the phenomenon is provocative. I mean, it is. It comes close to aircraft. It comes close to civilian aircraft. But one of the things that the French research has shown, which isn't generally known, is that in that database. Um, The the behavior of the UFO is different when it's a military aircraft or a civilian aircraft. So in the database, which is probably one of the top, one of the best uh, studied databases we have, um, there are civilian aircraft, there are commercial uh, commercial aircraft, and there are military aircraft. So you have everything from uh, b2 bombers and f18s to piper cups okay and uh, and of course you know united 237 uh, heavy uh going from new york to san francisco you have all of them but the behavior of the phenomenon is different and that's something that has not been studied something that should be studied that can be studied with good computer science you, know, you can look at the parameters with uh, you know. And uh, that that file is available, and nobody's done that. So you know, where is all that talk about we're going to study that? So on the the military finds show uh, seem to show hostility. After all, we've we've also got you know instances where missile silos were turned up. And we know that happened in Russia. It happened before in the Soviet Union and it has happened in the U.S. several times where, and there are also, there is also at least one case to my knowledge where a a launch sequence was activated. You know, the silo opened and, and the launch sequence started. Well, it's it's not supposed to stop by itself, you know. <laughs> That's <laughs> because, concerning, uh, yeah. And of it course course can't be it stopped too. either. <laughs>
0: Once it starts, it's nothing you can do, right? If you're not manually turning those keys and initiating the sequence, I think Jim Semivan actually talked about this when he was yes. on our episode. Yes, he did. He did. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and that could mean uneasiness, I mean, pure and simple, for sure. And it's not just an American problem. So. Uh, the, the phenomenon is, seems to want to get our attention. You know, think again, uh, you know, think about Trinity, you know, uh, 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 Trinity one month after the first nuclear explosion, two days after the capitulation of Japan, this thing shows up and it, it is a, it's not a crash. It's, it's a controlled crash. The, the thing is intact. You know, an airplane would have blown up into a thousand pieces oh, yeah. when it hit the communication tower that the pilot reported. Uh, the, but the thing digs a boulevard down the hill, makes a turn and stops under power. Uh, but there is no visible source of power. There is no propeller. There is no. There is nothing underneath and. We we know that from the observers who were there.
1: And you mentioned how how he- how heavy is this thing, sir? Between two and five tons. Which no propulsion.
2: No, this system. is not yeah. this is not a balloon. Okay? Yeah. Uh, this is not even an experimental balloon. You know, so somebody is trying to get our attention. And um the the fact that I don't know what, you know, I'm not a historian. I, I don't know what it means that the the bomb has never been used again in war, you know, for since 1945 uh, in any form. Um, I don't know what it means, but you know, it might mean that there was a signal or a warning given at Trinity. Uh, the, the people who've gone there and have looked at the case haven't noticed the correlation with the atom bomb. I mean, how can you miss an atom bomb? Yeah. You know, and a number of UFO groups have gone there. They've picked up a few plants, you know, they've gone home with it, and they've interviewed the witness, and they they didn't notice the correlation, that they are standing within 20 miles of the Trinity site of Ground Zero. And that, you know, a big part of doing this book was reconstructing the history of the end of World War II for me. You know, I grew up in France. Um, Yeah, I was born in 1939, which is when World War II started. But by 1944, 45, you know, I was a toddler, but I knew what was happening. And I could see what was going on in the sky. I could hear the explosions. I could see the battles in the sky. Uh, This is something when you're four or five, you know, you you understand that. My, my, My parents, you know, explained to me what was going on. There was no place to hide. So I can relate to that time. I understand that it's hard for someone who reads my book today who is you know, 25 or 45, to put himself or herself in the conditions of you know New Mexico in August 1945. Um it's psychologically, sociologically, it's it's, it's hard to do. It's another you know era. But uh there are people who remember fortunately uh you know, Mr. Padilla, Jose Padilla, uh, was an you know an officer in the Highway Patrol in California for much of his life. Had fought in Korea. Uh, he's still alive, very much alive. And you know, we've become we've become friends. And um, he remembers all that. He has a very good memory of 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 all those all those events. So yes, to come back to your question the the behavior of the phenomenon with respect to the, the military is different. Now the, the military has sensors that are designed. Now in the case of the Nimitz there is a memo that I've 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 seen uh, you know a five or six page memo from Raytheon to the Navy saying, uh, you know, that tracking of that object that you saw, that your pilots described, that tracking was done with one of our cameras. Well, it's an infrared camera. It's not a visual camera. Everybody talks about it as if it was, you know, an ordinary camera. Well, it's a very, very advanced infrared camera. But they said, you know, you... We delivered it to you under contract to track enemy aircraft. You never said that you were going to track UFOs with it, okay? I mean, they didn't say that, but the, the, the memo says, these are the characteristics, these were the parameters you gave us. You need to track the exhaust of enemy jets, essentially. That's what we gave you. Uh, don't extrapolate from what we've given you uh, about what that device is going to do in different conditions. You know, you're not, you can't do that. You have to take other things into account. Now, if you have radar, I mean, we don't give you the distance, okay? People say, well, it must have been so much, well, how do they know? Well, they, they know because of the radar, they don't know because of the camera, okay? Yeah. Uh, in all of that, probably the eyes of the pilots are probably the best detector, you know, because they are—they've been in combat. They are used. They are professional. They are used to, you know, everything you can you can see in the sky. And
1: observers, right? Yeah.
2: Yes, and they are wonderful observers. So I, I would listen to them first before going to what the instruments say. And there are ways of fooling those instruments, by the way an instrument is just, you know, a piece of hardware and a good engineer who can come up with ways of fooling any piece of hardware. I certainly know that after, you know, being around some some advanced technology in, in, in Silicon Valley. So I would first listen to the pilots and they are extraordinary men and women. So, but again, they are in, um, it's surrounded with instruments that are designed for war; they are not designed for physics, and uh, so there is an overlap there that we must consider.
1: Right. As far as uh, as far as um, um, the Trinity is concerned, you were mentioning um, that it was within the blast radius of. Well, not blast radius, but at least there would be effects. Um, Jose Padilla, I believe, and his mother had seen the bomb go off. Actually, his mom was blinded for a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Oh,
2: blinded permanently in one eye.
1: Oh, wow. So they were close. And
2: he lost hearing in one ear. One of his ears started bleeding with the, the shockwave. Right. Is,
0: did they, is the reason they didn't evacuate everybody because they, again, as you mentioned, it was four times larger of an explosion, and they thought you know, no big deal, but I, you know, is that no, the reason I, these people they, were still- I knew
2: it was a big deal. Uh, but if they, they knew they were surrounded with with spies that they had not detected, you know, German and and uh, Soviet, you know, spies, and maybe other countries as well, uh, within the teams uh, around Trinity, around the ball. So um, they felt that they couldn't take the, the risk of uh, the, the the test being compromised. The, um, one of the things that shocked me uh, is in, in talking to the people there, including the new witness that we found that, that we report on in this new edition, is that they didn't tell people even after the explosion, even after the war, when it, you know there was no more, secrecy about the atom bomb. There was about the fact that it existed. (laughs) I mean, the Japanese knew that that it existed. Uh, There there were secrets about the physics, but they should have told the local people, you know, don't drink the water from your reservoir. That, you know, there was, it's um, really uh, you know, criminal, that they didn't tell people after the explosion. There were there strategic reasons for hiding it until the point where they were sure of what they had, that, they, that the bomb would work. Remember that there you were know, a number of physicists who told them it'll never work. Yeah. Know? And uh, yes, Enrico Fermi computed that the bomb was four times more powerful than the equations had suggested. But uh, you know, the fact is it worked. But it it also not all the plutonium was used and the plutonium fell on the farms all around within within that area of New Mexico, driven by the wind that was going exactly in that direction, you know, to the to the northeast and then it turned to the west, which would have placed it over that that area.
0: Was that because it was a ground level detonation? Like I know even Nagasaki, they detonated the bomb 2000 feet above the ground so yeah. that the plutonium would have a chance to burn up. It was almost a more humane atom bomb if there is such a thing. I mean, it, it, it was designed <laughs> but, to not have that same effect. So. I,
2: I found that in a little brochure that I bought for five bucks. When I went to the Trinity site, I bought it from you know, the army store. Yeah. Um, but I had never understood that before. That you know that you cannot test an atom bomb, but everybody says it was a test. You know, the scientists did a test of the atom bomb. Well, that atom bomb was equivalent to the one that was used on Nagasaki. You know, yeah, and yeah.
0: Was it eighteen or yeah, eighteen kilotons or something. I think was the size. Was,
2: uh, there are different estimates. It's between eighteen and twenty-three. Kilotons. Yeah. Then it flattened Nagasaki, you know. But at Nagasaki and at Hiroshima, after they realized that the, that the destruction at Trinity, including the civilian zones around Trinity, yeah. they reset the the altitude for the bomb to detonate, as you said, to over 2,000 feet, in order to minimize the radioactivity. I mean, the radioactivity is a side effect of the bulb. Yeah. The bomb works essentially by creating an instant temperature that's equivalent to the, the, the temperature at the surface of the sun with an extraordinary wind that is going to destroy any structure. Okay. That's what it's designed to do. It's not designed to kill a lot of people by radioactivity in the next, yeah. you know, either right now or five years or 10 years or 20 years you know, it's not designed to do that. So um, I I don't think the Japanese know that. They are going to discover that we just signed a contract for uh, which I'm very proud of for the Japanese edition of Trinity. And uh, I I think that that is a very humbling experience that the book will be read in, in Japan.
1: Yeah, congratulations, by the way. You're you're um as hard of a writer as you are an investigator. I know that you've been writing books for a long time, but this Trinity, I love to write. yeah, I love- you love to write, and you'll be known for that definitely. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were an outcast, uh, but you have become a an icon, and that's that's something that you should be proud of. Um, there's people like ourselves that are huge fans of yours. That you know we've watched your career and hope that they make a movie about your life someday because I think it'd be quite interesting. Uh, you know, yeah, you're you're a hero. Let's just put it that way. You are a person to look up to and to emulate, especially in this field. Uh, it's not like I said; it's it's rare to find somebody that has a humble view of things and and, and humble personality as well, and it's refreshing.
2: You know, the real uh, heroes are the the witnesses, like uh, uh, like Mister Padilla, like the the new witness that we report on and. In- you know, and again, uh, you know, I, I went there to interview a witness about what he had seen, especially what he had seen about the the materials that were that were left after Trinity, the fibers that were glowing in different different ways, and so on. That uh, we still don't don't understand. I mean, it's not it's not an optical fiber. You know, it's something else. And, but when you go there, people, yeah, they are willing to talk about Trinity. But they will tell you about what it did to their families. Mm-hmm. And they they open a drawer and they show you pictures of the kids who died when they were 18 of, you know, radioactivity, radioactive, you know, diseases. Uh, and, they, and those families were... Decimated for no reason. Um, and nobody wanted to admit it. So, uh, you know, Paula Harris and I decided to uh, donate part of the royalties from this book uh, to an organization that supports the victims of Trinity, and victims of the, uh, you know, radioactive fallout. Um, because this was just so. Powerful. I mean, yeah. and uh, it's it's more powerful than the UFO or whatever it was. Um, now, again, I I'm an information scientist. I'm not. I, I should not call myself a physicist because physics have changed so much since I learned physics, and I haven't practiced you know physics in the lab for a long time. But uh, you know, I, I'm. As current as you can be in uh, computer science and AI and information science. So what I look for are correlations among different things. You know, Um, and here the what's important is to remember is the correlation between Trinity, Socorro, and Valenzuela, because Socorro and Valenzuela are so. so hard, I mean, they are so so well-established, you know, again, the witnesses have been interviewed at the site immediately after the observation, when the traces were there, the traces could be preserved, there were materials recovered, they were, and in all all two cases, as in Trinity, the object was oval, was egg-shaped, or avocado-shaped, and the creatures were humanoid who could breathe the air and they were three feet tall. Now that, you know, there's a, 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 a total of uh, uh, what, uh, uh, seven of them, okay, between the three at Trinity and, and the, the, the two at Socorro and the two at Valenso. So, you know, we have, we have a strong correlation there. And that's how we're going to make progress with this. No one case yes. is going to convince the Academy of Sciences. You know, there is no no way. They'll say, "Well, there must be something you're not telling us," or "There must be something that uh, there must be some other element that hasn't been captured by the instruments," or "There must be something else." Even the Nimitz. I mean, in the Nimitz, you know, I've seen the studies of the Nimitz. I believe the pilots. Uh, I know what the instruments did, but half of the data is missing. You know, at the Nimitz, after it was all done, there was a plane that landed on the deck. Two guys came out, went to talk to the captain, got all the data from all the radars, got back into their plane and left. What What is that about? Where is the data? I mean, can, can we talk about the case without that data? You know, I mean, in physics, when you we went to school, the first thing the teacher told you is, you know, read the damn, you know, uh, story. Okay, read the whole thing. Don't, don't start writing equations without reading what we're asking you to do. Okay, uh, and that's something you apply in science. You want all the data you can get. Well, half of the data is gone, okay? So it's gone because it, it, in part, I mean, this, there were classified areas of technology there. So I'm, I'm sure it's, uh, but there, there are other cases where um, similar things happened um, and two officers show up they show a credential to the the man who was in charge at the time of the op, of the operation. They confiscate all the data and they walk away with it. Well, uh, data above top secret, uh, you don't do it like that. You know, it would be a little too easy. You know, you and I could dress up in some uniform and go there and demand the the the, the data. There are papers to be signed by two people and uh, to be co-signed by the people who own the data and are transmitting it. And there are credentials being shown. Okay. In those cases, uh, I don't know about the limits. But in the early cases, that I do know but no credentials. I mean, credentials were shown, but no paper trace was left okay this is incredible this is impossible you know so that means that there is a structure somewhere that owns this problem and when something happens that relate to this problem the the, the data goes somewhere where you know suddenly uh, people at my level cannot cannot know what it is so um, you know, I, I I salute the fact that Congress is going to look into all aspects of that. I hope they take into account uh, cases before 1947, because it didn't start at Waswell.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you brought up a good point, which we've mentioned before on the podcast that, you know, you have this organization's that have always showed up and taken, you know, evidence and stuff like that, doesn't give credentials. They've always done that since the, you know, as far as we know from 1947 on Uh, and now we have Congress putting together these, uh, you know, panels and and these groups, are they going to be battling these other organizations that have been doing this for so long? Like, are they going to be competing against these guys to get the information? Like, are they going to show up first and, collected before Congress appointed um, committee comes up and, and and investigates themselves so I think that's something to watch out for in the future as well
2: but what's very hopeful is the the fact that something that dr heine had always recommended you know let the witnesses free to to talk about what they've seen of course you have to put guidelines around that because they may have seen the classified experiment right uh, that um, you know is properly classified, and you know, so you have to respect those boundaries. But when when we know that it was not a, a you know like a classified experiment, uh, or that or a confidential experiment that belongs to a company. I mean, you know, companies have industrial secrets. Somebody could have seen something, and uh, it legally and properly has to be protected. And Congress, I, I think, will opine that that protection is, is is valid. But what about the cases where, you know, what about the case like Lonnie where obviously what he saw wasn't one of ours. And, you know, the, the, the Air Force came out and said, well, you know, the, yeah, it's not it's not something we can do. Yeah,
1: the pilots weren't even ours, <laughs> right? They were little guys, yeah. Uh, Louis, do you have any final questions for our guest today? No, but
0: what I do want to do something cool here. Uh, I want to do a little toast because it is our 100th episode. Um, again, we don't. it's a lot of hard work to get there. <clears throat> and I think it's because of our viewers and listeners that have been dedicated, Absolutely. followed us, and the caliber of the guests and gentlemen like Monsieur Jacques Valet. They speak for themselves, and uh, we pride ourselves very highly on that. Uh, It's easy to just do a show, easier. It's very difficult to consistently get people that are busy and writing books and attending conferences in Saudi Arabia. So for them to give us a little bit of their time, it it touches us to our hearts. So uh, you got something to drink, Jay? I do. I do. All right. We got a little uh, um, (laughs) champagne-grade ginger ale here. So that boy,
2: Jacques. (laughs) California sparkling water. You Love know. it. <laughs> so, nice. So
0: th- this is to another 100 episodes, to all our fans, all our guests, and to Monsieur Valet. Cheers. Yeah. I
1: hope to come for episode
2: 200.
1: Absolutely. Love that. Jacques, you're welcome on this podcast anytime you want. You call us up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you want to do a podcast, we'll do it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's and, been a pleasure Jacques, for sure, and thanks again. And Chuck, where can people get your book uh, Trinity?
2: Um, on uh, Amazon.
1: Amazon. Yeah, perfect.
2: Okay. On Amazon, if you put the title, my name, uh, and uh, again, it's co-authored with Paola Paola Harris, who had started that uh, that study and brought me in uh, after three or four years of of the the initial study, brought me in to look at the more technical aspects and look at the correlations.
1: As well. Nice. We had Paula on a few episodes back, so it's nice to have you both both on the program. It's awesome. Jacques Vallet, thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on UFP Studies today.
2: Thank you.